slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you pour out your spirit upon us, upon this familiar story for many of us. Would you open our eyes to its astounding truth that we may too marvel and disbelieve for joy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I have a vivid memory of a Christmas Eve service uh, sometime early high school, maybe freshman, sophomore year. Uh, school was out for break. The weather had started to turn cold. My family had a tradition in Cincinnati of going to downtown Fountain Square and ice skating. And we'd finish, wrap, finish, wrap up um, last minute Christmas shopping. And as dusk um, settled, we'd enter our candlelit service um, at the church. The service started with a familiar Advent hymn. I don't recall which one. Um, and then came the first nativity reading about a baby born to a virgin, a baby understood to be Emmanuel, God with us. At that moment, from a, pew, a few pews over, there was a visitor, and I heard an exasperated sigh. This is so stupid. It wasn't said that loudly, and those around uh, the visitor said, hush. Um, but something I've never forgotten. The Christmas story is so, the Christian story is so familiar here in the West. A recent survey showed that 90% of Britons are at least somewhat familiar with the Christmas and Easter stories, with 60% being very familiar. Here in America, the number of individuals self-identifying as, as Christians is in decline, but still 65% of the country identifies as Christians. Indeed, many of us in this room here 
have grown up with the Christian message our entire lives. We've grown up in Christian homes, attended Sunday school, youth group, attended Christian schools. There's not been a day in our lives for many of us when we did not know of Jesus. And perhaps this gets at why that Christmas Eve service stood out to me so much some 20 plus years ago. It was the first time that I recall that the story which I had grown up with and become familiar with and assumed had been scoffed at inside the walls of the safe confines of the church. This isn't supposed, this isn't how you're supposed to respond to this familiar story. The fact is though, that the visitor's reaction is actually much closer to the initial reactions we see both in the, in the, the nativity stories and the Easter story. Bewilderment and doubt serve as the bookends to Luke. Just as Mary and Zachariah at the beginning in response to the angel's announcement, so too the disciples' encounter with the risen Jesus leaves them incredulous and full of wonder. Turning specifically to Luke 24, when the women first report to the disciples that the tomb is empty and Jesus has appeared, Luke writes that the disciples flatly dismissed it as an idle tale. The Greek here is strong, and it refers to a coarse rejection. They consider it pure nonsense, devoid of anything worthwhile. In a word, stupid. Listen to the initial reactions to the resurrection recorded throughout Luke 24. The disciples were perplexed. They were frightened. They were marveling. They had amazement. They were startled, troubled, doubting. As the disciples take in the data, one of the last reactions recorded in our text is disbelief for joy. The combination of these Greek phrases really astounds commentators as far as its exact meaning. One commentator puts it this way, Luke is portraying a purely emotional response which is so powerful that they are too overwhelmed to really believe it in the sense of committing themselves to its reality. The disciples' complicated reaction teaches us a great deal about the Easter message. What is it about the resurrection that caused them to straddle the line of doubt and utter joy? Whether you've heard this story a thousand times, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time today, my prayer is that we would all disbelieve for joy this morning. And so I want us to linger over and lean into the disciples' complicated reaction. The main point today can be summarized as this. The Easter story is too category shattering for us to comprehend apart from our eyes being opened. The Easter story is too category shattering for us to comprehend apart from our eyes being opened. We'll uh, unpack this in two parts, how the resurrection shatters our categories and then how our eyes are open to see. There are uh, two ways that the resurrection shatters our categories according to our text. Um, first, the resurrection shatters our cosmology. Chris introduced us to this fancy uh, word last week, um, so I'll uh, lean on him. Cosmology refers to the nature of the universe and, and how it is governed, at least how we perceive it. Um, and our text opens with, gives us an insight into the, uh, the Jewish cosmology at that time. Jesus appears to disciples and proclaims peace. The disciples respond in shock and believe that they are seeing a spirit. What exactly is going on here in this encounter? There are two primary Jewish groups at that time, and at the end of the day, neither of them had room in their cosmologies for a resurrection in the middle of history. 
The first group, the Sadducees, were the Jewish aristocrats known for their wealth and control of institutions such as the Sanhedrin and the temple. For their part, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection at all, period. It didn't happen. Um, the Sadducees refused to recognize um, any source beyond the written Torah, which is what we believe to be the, the first five books of the Bible. And according to the, the way they interpret the Torah, there was, it ruled out any possibility of the supernatural in an afterlife, let alone a bodily resurrection. We see them conf uh, directly confront Jesus on this point in scriptures. The Pharisees were the larger of the two Jewish groups. The Pharisees believed in the oral tradition that extended beyond the written Torah, and as such, they did have room for supernatural. Luke spells this out in uh, Acts 23. He writes, Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. The Pharisees believed in angels and spirits and did indeed believe in the resurrection. However, resurrection for them was something that they hoped God would do at the very end of history. Therefore, Pharisees had developed an imagination for an intermediate state between death and the resurrection that would occur at the end of history. This first stage after death was believed by the Pharisees to be disembodied, a place where souls went in waiting for that final resurrection. And so a majority of the Jewish imagination at that time likely would have allowed for a visit of an angel or a spirit connected to this intermediate disembodied state. And this is probably how we should understand the disciples' startled reaction. When Jesus appeared, they thought that they were seeing a spirit. They likely thought that they were having a supernatural interaction with the intermediate state of the afterlife. That would have been the best possible explanation available to them. A, a resurrected body in the middle of history didn't happen. There was no category for that in the Jewish worldview at the time. And yet the gospel writers go to great lengths to stress the historical resurrection. Make no mistake, Luke, the author, intends to write history. Luke was likely a physician and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. The book of Luke is a first of a two-volume work, as Luke is widely acknowledged to be um, the author of Acts as well. There's no evidence that Luke was an apostle or knew Jesus in the flesh, so his account is the result of careful research and consideration of testimony and other sources. Luke, the physician, has examined the evidence, and the evidence points to a little resurrection. I think it's worthwhile to, to pause here and let this sink in a second. Um, this perhaps is self-evident, but the gospel account is not a product of American evangelicalism. It was not written in the 1960s as a call to baptism in either conservatism or progressivism. It's not a document that's owned by the Democratic Party or Republican Party. It's not even a Western document. Instead, it's a document likely written somewhere between 65 and 100 AD concerning events that occurred in and around Palestine. To identify as a Christian is to believe that world history changed forever when a Jewish man died and then rose again from the dead some 2,000 years ago. How can we ever assume this as self-evident? How can we ever roll our eyes at individuals who scoff at it? Based, I don't know about you, but based on my brief 40 years here on earth, when people die, they tend not to rise again. The historical resurrection appears ridiculous on its face based on what we appear to know about how the world works. The resurrection should startle and confound us just as it did the disciples at that time. In fact, the gospel writers assume our skepticism. They invite us to argue with the empty tomb. They understand what, how crazy this claim is. 
Most historians today acknowledge uh, the historical Jesus. He did live. Moreover, we have um, evidence of non-Christian writers um, who wrote about the execution of Jesus within 100 years of that event. We know from the gospel accounts that a group of followers made the curious claim that after his execution, they found the tomb empty and that he had risen from the dead. Now, the rulers of that day had every incentive to uh, expose this as the idle tale that they believed it was by producing the body of Jesus. Now, a missing body, excuse me. Um, now, a missing body does not necessarily prove uh, that the resurrection happened, to be sure. And the disciples, either through well-intended wish, wishful thinking or cunning calculation, could have made the story up. In fact, that was the allegation that was circulating at that time, that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus and they had made this up. But if you spend time with the gospel narratives, you quickly realize that they do not read like something that has been made up. As N.T. Wright has gone, on, gone to great lengths to show, the gospel accounts are simply too strange to be made up. For example, if you're going to make up a story, why do you place women front and center? In that, in that patriarchal society at the time, women were not considered um, credible witnesses in court. Listen to the words from the Jewish historian Josephus, who was a contemporary of that period. Quote, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. Now these are harsh uh, words for our modern ears to be sure, but the point is, is that was the cultural backdrop at the time. And yet it is women who first encounter Jesus. It is women who first share the story of the good news. Why would you include that detail if you were trying to invent a story? Second, why portray the risen Jesus so ordinarily? Now, it's true that the gospel encounters um, include Jesus uh, passing through doors and disappearing. He had a transformed body. However, at the same time, Jesus is depicted very ordinarily. Mary in the Gospel of John mistakes him to be a gardener. He walks with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus without the disciples recognizing him or, or, or him standing out in any particular way. Contrast this, then, with the encounter of the, at the tomb with the angels, who are described to be in dazzling apparel. If the disciples invented the resurrection story in order to build a movement around a fictitious Messiah, you would think they would have portrayed the risen Messiah similar to that of the angels, or better yet, to the transfigured Jesus, which we uh, referred to earlier in the service. In that text, Jesus described his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Surely this is more in line with the brightness and stars metaphors of Daniel 12, a key passage that fueled the Jewish imagination of resurrection at the end of history. And yet the depictions of Jesus are quite curious. No dazzling light, no shining stars, no shining face. Third, why make up the resurrection account at all? If the goal was to build a movement around a dead Messiah, you didn't necessarily need to make up a resurrection. There were other options that would have been more palatable at the time. On the one hand, you could have moved on to Jesus' brother Andrew and have him carry forward Jesus' mission and teaching. If you felt that some kind of appearance by Jesus was necessary, though, then why not stick to vis visions and visitations from his spirit? This would have fit uh, much more concretely within the Jewish worldview at the time. The decision to base an invented story around the resur resurrection would be all the more head-scratching when you consider Luke's intended audience. Scholars debate whether Luke was um, uh, a Jew or a Gentile, 
However, there is broad consensus that Luke writes his account with primarily Gentiles in mind, or non-Jews. Gentiles were immersed in the Hellenistic worldview of that time, a worldview that had even less room for a bodily resurrection. The Hellenistic worldview did believe uh, in heroes becoming immortal, and even the dead um, visiting the living via dreams and visions. But there was absolutely zero room for resurrection in that worldview. It's because the body was viewed as the problem. It was a prison to escape. And so one has to wonder why in the world would Luke so emphatically insist on the bodily resurrection when attempting to persuade the Gentiles? That is, unless it actually happened. The fact the story seems too strange to be made up does not prove that it happened. Granted. However, it does go towards its reasonableness. It is perfectly reasonable to conclude that the historical resurrection is the most satisfying explanation of the data available to us. The historical resurrection is the basis of the Christian faith. We we saw this last week in um, our, our text from 1 Corinthians where Paul writes, if in fact Jesus was not raised from the dead, your faith is futile. The historical resurrection is essential. And the basis of our faith, friends, is reasonable. This is a point we should come back to time and time again throughout our Christian journey. In the fog of our doubts, and we will doubt, we always have something solid to return to, something we can grasp, hold on to, push back on. The Christian faith stakes its claim on a real person, Jesus, raising in real time, in real space, in real history. However, we will never grasp the mystery of Easter through reason alone. It is one thing to believe in the historical resurrection. It is quite another to see the risen Jesus for who he is. And this brings us to the second way that Easter story shatters our categories. The resurrection shatters our categories of Jesus. Um, A few verses earlier in the the text that's not not, not printed, um, Jesus encounters two disciples who are walking um, from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. This is shortly after Jesus has died. The disciples give us insight into how Jesus was likely viewed during his earthly ministry. They say, he is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God. The descriptive phrase here is the same that Luke uses to describe Moses in the book of Acts. And it's typical for ancient Jewish and Hellenistic biographies. The Jewish historian Josephus described Jesus as a wise man and worker of remarkable feats. The two disciples go on to say that they had hoped that this mighty prophet, this new Moses, would be the one to redeem Israel. Hope in the redemption of Israel likely included some notion of spiritual blessing and deliverance from sins. And so we cannot reduce it simply to political. However, there can be no denying that the hope was certainly politically charged. Jesus is understood to be a great prophet like Moses. And just as the prophet Moses Redeem the, pe- redeem the people from Egyptian bondage, so too the disciples hoped that Jesus would redeem his people from Roman rule. So you put it all together and you have this understanding of Jesus. He was a mighty prophet in word and deed who he hoped would restore the nation of Israel. Now we'll notice that uh, the disciples' category for Jesus uh, had no room for, for suffering. As Christians, we likely take this for granted every Advent, but that, at that time, no one had thought to link the mysterious uh, suffering servant passages from Isaiah that we are so familiar with in Advent um, with an explicit messianic hope. 
And yet that is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus' suffering is the missing piece of the puzzle, the key to understanding his true identity. You can't escape it. That is why he leads with his suffering in all the gospel encounters. The first thing he does is invite um, the people to engage him bodily. And now we know that this was to prove that he actually had risen from the dead. But notice how he goes out of his way to emphasize the wounds of his risen body. When he then begins to help the disciples interpret what they are experiencing, suffering is central. To the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he leads with, from our text, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? The resurrected Jesus refuses to be known independent of his suffering, but the disciples cannot see it. When Jesus, the great prophet and teacher, entered Jerusalem the week prior, the disciples were likely quick to pick up on and interpret pieces that fit their hopes for who Jesus was and what his mission was, challenging the religious authorities, chasing Gentile merchants out of the temple. There's this, also this strange encounter at the end of um, the Passover uh, where um, Jesus says, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then the disciples say, Jesus, we have two swords. And he says, it is enough. Fast forward a few hours, uh, and you see Peter wielding a sword and trying to violently defend um, Jesus at his arrest. It, it's, it's quite clear uh, the connections that they were making there. At the same time, they seemingly glossed over the puzzling pieces that did not fit their narrative. Jesus gently and humbly riding in on a donkey, and his explicit mentions throughout the Gospels time and time again of his vocation of a suffering servant. How could the disciples miss what Jesus stated so explicitly? The reason I think that they missed it is that they interpreted Jesus according to their own agendas and hopes. And I think we do the same all the time, too. The question is posed to every single one of us here. Who is Jesus? Did he teach a message of peace and love that we hope will make the world a better place? Did he, did he set an example of the morals America was originally founded upon and that we hope it will return to? Did he have a unique spiritual connection with God that we hope will help us on our journey of self-discovery? Did he reveal right doctrine that we hope will preserve pure orthodoxy? You see, I think our understanding of Jesus flows out of our deepest hopes. The disciples' greatest hope was in the restoration of Israel, and they understood Jesus to be a great prophet. If your deepest hope is in the better world, then you will likely make Jesus into a teacher. If your deepest hope is in the morality of America, then your Jesus is a moral example. If your deepest hope is in your own self-discovery, then your Jesus is a teacher or spiritual guru. If your deepest hope is in maintaining pure orthodoxy, then your Jesus is a prophet or teacher. And I want to linger on that last one a moment, because I think it's probably most applicable to our context. For those of us who have grown up in the church, it can be tempting to think that we have all the answers. We have God figured out. We can fit everything neatly into certain doctrinal boxes. The danger is that our faith becomes in how much we know rather than who we know. And as a result, we subtly trick ourselves into thinking our standing with God is tied to our theological head knowledge. And when that happens, we not only become spiritually proud, we run the risk of seeing Jesus only as a teacher or prophet, not a savior. Friends, no matter how you slice it, the human heart cannot comprehend a suffering Messiah. It is offensive at best and blasphemy at worst. 
And as a result, the human heart is blind to who Jesus really is. And so this brings us to the last point. How are our eyes open to see Jesus as he really is? The disciples' hope for Jesus was tied to what they believed was their greatest problem, foreign rule and oppression. Jesus, prophet and Messiah, was expected to address the problem head on by leading a political rebellion to restore the kingdom of Israel. The great irony, of course, is that instead of leading a rebellion, Jesus put down a rebellion, the rebellion of the human heart. You see, we were made to be in communion with God. However, the human race has tricked itself into believing that we instead exist for ourselves. And this is what the Bible calls sin. In plunging himself into darkness and then rising from the dead, Jesus diagnosed and treated what is in fact the greatest problem of all, our separation from God. We are born into the world, moving away from him. Our greatest problem then is not outside of us. It is not the moral decline of America. It is not closed-mindedness. It is not threats to democracy. It is not even threats to doctrinal purity. No, our greatest problem is our separation from God, the one for whom our hearts were made to yearn for. It is from this fundamental problem that all other problems flow. Human separation from God is a cosmic problem. All of creation groans in the tyranny of uh, in the weight of sin. The first pro- the, the problem, this fundamental problem, was uh, introduced by the first Adam's disobedience in the garden, and creation has been longing since for a second Adam to come and undo it. And that is the glorious surprise of the resurrection. Jesus is the second Adam. God took on flesh, and he came into the world to reclaim what had been lost. In dying on the cross, he absorbed sin and death. In rising from the dead, he conquered sin and death once and for all. His cosmic victory is so much bigger than individual souls going to heaven. It is the start of undoing all that is ugly and wrong in our world. And the reversal starts, it has to start, in our own hearts. Only when we understand the depth of our biggest problem will suffering Jesus begin to make any kind of sense. Only then will a message of repentance, of forgiveness of sins, become the sweet comfort and good news that it is. Until we come to recognize sin as our greatest problem, we will keep Jesus, or likely to keep Jesus, in the teacher or prophet box. How then do we come to this recognition of our greatest problem? It's only a personal encounter that will open our eyes. Luke 24 includes some beautiful descriptions of uh, means of grace, and I'm sure Chris will tie this in with um, the the Lord's Supper here. Uh, No pressure. Uh, (laughs) Means of grace, ways that God opens our eyes uh, and applies grace in our life through scripture and sacrament. However, I think foundational, foundational to all of these, though, is a personal encounter. The disciples are hiding behind locked doors, afraid. We could say that the locked doors are a metaphor for their hearts. They are locked out from seeing what was really happening, seeing Jesus. The movement towards recognition and faith begins at Jesus' initiative. Notice, it's, he's, he's the one making initiative here. He appears, and then he speaks. He does not chastise, but, but proclaims peace. A proclamation of peace precedes the disciples' understanding of who he is. 
He then engages them on their terms to help them understand that, in fact, he has risen from the dead. Friends, Jesus does not wait for us to figure him out and then invite us over for dinner. No, he pursues. He invites himself over for broiled fish. Grace is a gift. I'll close with um, a vignette from another encounter with Jesus that I think richly illustrates this point. According, according to the Gospel of John, um, Jesus chooses first to appear to Mary Magdalene. Mary does not re- recognize the resurrected Jesus until he addresses, addresses her personally by name. Mary. Her eyes are open and she recognizes Jesus. And the first thing she does is blurts out, Rabbani. Rabbani means teacher, and it is a title of high respect, but it's not Jesus' God. Mary has not figured everything out at this point. But then she clings to him. As a woman who had been previously demon-possessed, Mary would have considered herself as the ultimate outsider in that society, unclean, unworthy. Upon seeing Jesus, her knee-jerk reaction is to throw herself at his, at his feet in complete dependence. Friends, Jesus is big enough for all of our doubts and mixed-up thoughts. He came not for the healthy, but the sick. That is why he had to suffer. The question is not how strong your faith is. The question is, what is the object of your faith? May we, too, make Jesus the object of our faith, clinging to him in wonder and disbelief. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you make a story which is familiar to most of us unfamiliar? For those who may be hearing this for the first time, would it be... um, become familiar, Lord, that for all of us, this story um, would be an astonishing truth that shapes our hearts and gives us great joy. Thank you for going to the lengths that you went to save us from ourselves and to bring us into right relationship with you. We praise you for your goodness and your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.